Coming up on Harvard Chan This Week in Health, the link between religion and health. There does seem to be something about the communal religious experience. Why regularly attending services could have a significant health benefit. Plus, violence in hospitals, the new study revealing the dangers that doctors and nurses often face. And the U.S. is in the midst of an epidemic of opioid abuse, but in many parts of the world, people are struggling to get access to the painkillers they need. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. I'm Amy Montemiro. And I'm Noah Levitt. We begin this week with an interesting question. Is there any health benefit to regularly attending religious services? Well, according to researchers at the Harvard Chan School, there might be. They looked at data from more than 70,000 women involved in the nurses' health study and found that those who attended religious services more than once a week had a 30% lower chance of dying over a 16-year period than women who did not attend services. In particular, these women had lower risk of cardiovascular and cancer-related mortality. And studying links between religious service attendance and health can be tricky because of something called reverse causation, basically that only those who are healthy can actually attend services. But in this case, the researchers addressed that issue by using rigorous methodology that controlled for common causes of attendance and mortality, used a larger sample size, and had repeated measurements over time of both attendance and health. And they also controlled for a variety of factors, including diet, physical activity, and alcohol consumption. The study's senior author, Tyler Vanderweel, professor of epidemiology at the Harvard Chan School, says that when it comes to the lower mortality risk, a number of things can be happening. He says that attending services increases social support, discourages smoking, decreases depression, and helps people develop a more optimistic or hopeful outlook on life. One of the intriguing things about the associations, and it really does seem to be something about service attendance itself. It's not just how important is religion. It's not self-assessed religiosity. It's not self-assessed spirituality. If you look at associations with these other variables, they in fact tend to be quite weak with, uh, with mortality. So there does seem to be something about the communal religious experience that matters for health. Something powerful happens when people come together and participate religiously in these meaningful ways. The study does have some limitations, says Vanderweel, because it consisted mainly of white Christian women, so it might not be generalizable to the general population, other countries, or areas with limited religious freedom. Still, Vanderweel says it's significant from a public health perspective because so many Americans regularly attend religious services. About 40% of Americans report attending weekly, and based on the results of the study, the effect size seems to be fairly substantial. So I think we have good evidence that this really is a social determinant of health. It's not something that frequently comes up in our discussions of public health, but the results of this study perhaps suggest it ought to be discussed more often than is currently the case at present. Vanderweel says the next step would be seeing if some of these associations hold true among people practicing other religions. On Capitol Hill this week, lawmakers are wrangling over funding to battle the Zika virus. The Senate voted to advance a $1.1 billion emergency funding package. That's less than the nearly $2 billion requested by the Obama administration, but double the amount of funding in a separate bill proposed by House Republicans. The House bill would require that the Obama administration reallocate $622 million from existing programs to fight Zika. The White House says that Zika, which has been linked to severe birth defects, warrants new spending. CDC Director Thomas Frieden has been critical of this funding battle, telling the New York Times, quote, this is no way to fight an epidemic.
when you think of dangerous and violent workplaces, you might not necessarily think of a hospital or a doctor's office. But new research is shedding light on the dangerous conditions that healthcare workers often face. The study was led by James Phillips, an emergency medicine physician at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and an instructor at the Harvard Medical School. His research found that almost three-quarters of workplace assaults in the U.S. between 2011 and 2013 happened in healthcare settings, and that 80% of emergency medical workers will experience violence at some point in their careers. Phillips' research stems from the 2015 murder of a surgeon inside Brigham and Women's Hospital. He says that most hospital violence is not that severe. Instead, it often ranges from threats to physical altercations. The vast majority of the time, it's going to be threats. It's going to be everything from, uh, I'm going to sue you, which is uh, not necessarily violence. But when it starts getting to the point where they're saying, you know, I'm going to beat you up, I'm going to kick your whatever, uh, you know, people balling up a fist or standing up to you and bowing up to you, that's real violence. And if that happened to you on the street or at McDonald's or at some other industrial place, that would be a crime. Uh, but for us, we we tend to just blow it off because we understand that our patients are undergoing stress uh, for one reason or another. Phillips says addressing these threats is important, and he draws a comparison to a criminal justice concept known as the broken windows theory. Basically that when low levels of violence persist, higher levels of crime can follow. And even though Phillips' research highlighted some alarming statistics, he says that violence in healthcare settings is an underreported and underrecognized problem. One reason, says Phillips, is that many doctors and nurses just consider violence a part of doing their job. But he says that shouldn't be the case, which is why he's pushing for more awareness and training in medical schools centered on workplace violence. Phillips says more research is needed to develop and assess ways to prevent violence in the workplace. But he says that hospitals and doctors' offices can take some immediate steps such as forming workplace violence committees and making it easier to report assaults. So the ideal situation would be uh, a zero tolerance. Every single incident that happens that you believe is an assault, and especially if it's a battery, needs to be a document that is easily done on your computer while you're sitting there immediately. And then that gets sent to the Workplace Violence Committee, which then subsequently reviews every single case that month and figures out the recourse. Does that patient need to be contacted? Does that patient need to be have their chart flagged so that whenever they come back to the emergency department or to the hospital, everyone knows that this patient has a history of violence? And that's been proven in the VA system that that has reduced recidivism of violence. When it comes to long-term solutions, Phillips says an evidence-based approach is needed. That means getting accurate prospective data on the amount and types of violence that occur in healthcare settings, and then developing and testing programs to see if they can reduce that violence. The U.S. is currently in the midst of an epidemic of opioid abuse, but in many other parts of the world, people are struggling to get the painkillers they need. Atlantic Commission on Palliative Care and Access to Pain Control estimates that 5.5 billion people, or 83% of the world's population, live in countries where there is low or non-existent access to painkillers. Researchers say a pain divide exists between the richest and poorest countries. To put this in perspective, the richest 10% of the world's population have access to dosages of pain medication that are 1,000 times greater than the rest of the world. We spoke about this with Afsan Badalia, a visiting scientist at the Harvard Chan School and a member of the Lancet Commission. She says that reasons for this are numerous and often vary from country to country. These include a lack of medical training, burdensome regulations, and high cost. 
Another key problem is the stigma surrounding opioids, partly driven by the fear of the opioid abuse epidemic in the U.S. general public tends to misunderstand the difference between the medical necessity for legitimate use for, for pain relief and the dependence on the abuse of painkillers. And there's negative perception about the use of pain control, which then leads to discrimination and isolation of people who are suffering. So overall, there's a stigma associated with prescribing, dispensing, and utilization of pain medicines. Patients who legitimately need pain medications will suffer in silence. And so this, this opioid abuse epidemic that's happening in the U.S. is certainly impacting other countries because many of these countries who are currently thinking about their regulatory policies around opioid control, opioid control are looking to decision thinking probably, well, how do we prevent this from rising in, in, in our countries? And often that can mean just restricting access immensely. Bedelia says that a key part of the work that the Lancet Commission is doing highlights that access to palliative care and painkillers is a fundamental part of a person's right to health. They're also conducting research showing that cost doesn't necessarily need to be a barrier for countries when it comes to painkillers. Expanding use of the vaccine for human papillomavirus, or HPV, will go a long way towards eliminating many cancer cases, but it won't eliminate all racial and ethnic disparities. That's according to a new study from researchers at the Harvard Chan School. They examined the impact of current and expanded use of the vaccine on six different HPV-associated cancers among different racial and ethnic groups. Nearly 80 million people in the U.S. are infected with HPV, which can lead to various forms of cancer in both women and men. And it's estimated that HPV vaccination can prevent up to three-quarters of these cancers. But uptake has been slow. The CDC says that less than half of girls and even fewer boys between the ages of 13 and 17 have received all three recommended doses of the HPV vaccine series. And researchers in the study found that while expanding vaccination coverage to a level of 84 percent, which has been achieved by other adolescent vaccines, would reduce the overall cancer burden, disparities may persist, and it may even increase among Hispanics, Blacks, American Indians, Pacific Islanders, and Alaskan Natives. We spoke about this with one of the study's authors, Emily Berger, a postdoctoral research fellow at the Harvard Chan School's Center for Health Decision Science. We can divide the observed inequalities into two groups, those that contribute to the risks of developing an HPV-associated cancer and those that contribute to the risk of dying from an HPV-associated cancer. So I think our findings really underline that the HPV vaccines do not improve timely diagnosis or survival, so existing disparities in access to treatment will remain important. Here's one example that illustrates Berger's point. High uptake of the vaccine is projected to reduce a man's risk of dying from an HPV-associated cancer by approximately 60%. But the relative disparities among racial and ethnic groups actually increased. That's all for Harvard Chan This Week in Health. I'm Noah Levitt. And I'm Amy Montemuro. If you want to catch up on past episodes of this podcast, you can always find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher.